this morning we continue our sermon series in the book of Daniel. I'll give you guys a second to hunt down Daniel in your Bibles. If you don't have a Bible with you, we do have some paperback Bibles around you. I would love it if everyone here would go there. And, uh, you know, uh, even if you don't read, it's okay. You can hold your Bible and a, a parent or a friend can lean over next to you and point out a couple words and you can maybe learn how to read a couple of the important things. Look for the word God. That's an easy one. We'd love for everyone here to join us in the scriptures this morning. We're going to be in Daniel chapter 8 this morning. Now we've taken a bit of a turn in the book of Daniel. We now are in chapter 8 and at the end of chapter 6, beginning of chapter 7, there was a a bit of a divide, a two-part division in Daniel that took place. Uh, Just to catch us up to that again, um, the first six chapters are the chapters that perhaps a lot of the children in the room would be familiar with, right? Uh, chapters uh, like, like Daniel and, and his friends eating a unique diet and yet growing strong. And, and uh, chapters about uh, Daniel's friends Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego being thrown into the fiery furnace and yet the Lord appearing with them and, and, and rescuing them by means of his messenger uh, who is in the fire with them. And the, the story of the handwriting on the wall that announced the downfall of a, a, a rebellious king and uh, uh, the, the lion's den, right? Daniel uh, continuing, as was his practice, praying before the Lord in his window and confessing that the Lord is king, no matter who this king and all his advisors think they are, and yet being thrown into a lion's den and there the Lord rescuing him because the Lord alone can rescue You're familiar with all those stories, right? Daniel's chapter 1 through 6. But then in chapter 7, things take a turn and it begins to look like things we are far less familiar with. These are visions and dreams that took place during the course of the timeline of the previous chapters that Daniel now is recording for us. And, and he re- records these visions and he uh, even the Lord gives him the interpretation of some of these and yet leaves some mysterious even to Daniel. And we call this literature the apocalyptic literature. Okay, do you hear that? This is the apocalyptic literature. Ian Duguid, that I have uh, leaned heavily on, a very helpful commentator, uh, says that the purpose of the apocalyptic literature is, is less about future um, uh, fortune-telling or something like that, some sort of uh, looking off into the future and knowing exactly what's coming up next, but rather at the heart of the revelation of the apocalyptic literature is it has the purpose of comforting and exhorting the faithful. What's the purpose of apocalyptic literature? To comfort and to exhort, to encourage and spur on the faithful. It does not, what we're about to read, what we read last week, what we'll read next week, does not first have the purpose of filling our minds with the names of future political leaders, or in this case, previous political leaders. But rather, it's to fill our minds with a vision of the Lord. And with a mind that is filled with a vision of the Lord, we will know how to navigate this world no matter what our future political leaders may be, whether for Daniel in his place in the kingdoms that would come, or for us today in the place that the Lord has put us. And we will have a vision of the Lord and remember that he is the one who is sovereign over all 
of those names, whoever they may be. Pastor Jamie Hart over at Cross Point Winter Park, uh, I, I just love this phrase. I'm going to say it over and over again. Someday I'm going to stop saying that Jamie said it. I'm going to start saying that I said it. Uh, poetic power over precision. Prophetic power over precision. And there's just a prophetic, uh, poetic and prophetic uh, a beauty that's evocative that takes place in the texts that we will read. That the idea is that we are to have a, a sort of emotional cringing response that resonates with whatever trials we find ourselves to be in in the present age. And then we get to see the Lord at work in the trials of the past and the sufferings of the past and the persecutions of the past. And we gain hope that the Lord is sovereign yet today in the suffering and the trials that we face in our current climate. Now, this morning, I want us to all experience the passage together. We're going to walk very slowly through it, so make sure that you keep your Bibles open. We're going to read, first of all, the first paragraph there, Daniel chapter 8, verses 1 through 4. All right, Daniel chapter 8, verses 1 through 4. In the third year of the king of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, after that which appeared to me at the first. And I saw in the vision, and when I saw, I was in, the Su- in Susa, the citadel, which is in the province of Elam. And I saw in the vision, and I was at the Ulai Canal. I raised my eyes and saw, and behold, a ram standing on the bank of the canal. It had two horns, and both horns were high, but one was higher than the other, and the higher one came up last. I saw the ram charging westward and northward and southward. No beast could stand before him, and there was no one who could rescue from his power. He did as he pleased, and he became great. Lord God, we would confess this morning, as Mark even led us to confess so beautifully, instructing us by your word, that we have been busy doing as we have pleased. And we have gone westward and eastward and northward and southward and and we've tried to conquer and and we're, we're nowhere near as powerful as this ram we're weak and we have failed and we're here and some of us are here just like as a last ditch effort god help and uh lord i pray that this morning instead of rampaging about in our lives we would see that you are great Cease to make great things of ourselves, but begin to see that we find our satisfaction in you. I pray that that is what you would do in the midst of this passage this morning. Encourage your saints and call those who are are yet wandering into your fold at the foot of the cross, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We get a little bit of the setting this morning, and some of you are like, I know what the setting is. It's hot in here. Yes, you're right. The air conditioning is broken. The, there's ringing of the fr- freezers not working over in the cafeteria. That's the setting that we are in. But if you think it's hot in here, you be Daniel and listen to the, some of the things that he got to hear. And he began to feel it heating up a little bit as well. So maybe, uh, maybe we just had the foresight to make sure the air conditioning busts this morning so you would feel the weight of this passage this morning. So let's lean into it together, okay? Um, The setting of this passage is Daniel chapter 8. Daniel chapter 7 actually begins in a very similar way. It says that it was that Daniel received this vision in the first year of Belshazzar. 
Now that Belshazzar is the king whose reign was brought to an end the night that some writing appeared on the wall and it said that he was weighed, measured, and found wanting. He was weighed, measured, and found wanting. I wonder if some ways that this vision does the same thing for us. As we see these kingdoms weighed and measured, they think that they are great and they are brought low. That some of what is happening is we and all the kingdoms of man are being weighed, wanted, weighed, measured, and found wanting. Daniel chapter 8, where Daniel 1 was in the first year of Belshazzar. Daniel 8 takes place in the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, an arrogant king building his kingdom on the foundation of another. Now, what we see in this passage, first of all, is we see a ram, right? You see him in the passage, and we're just going to walk right through and see what we see together. We see that he has two horns. They're both high horns. The Scriptures go out of its way to say that. It says that even though they were both high, there was one that was higher than the other. And he's charging west, north, and south. Now, if you have a ram that is charging west, north, and south, where did it come from? East? We're kind of running out of options here, people. Um, yeah, he's, he's coming from the east and he's charging in and, and this is invading ram doing a, a great work of the strength of two horns. And the passage tells us that no one could rescue. No one, no beast could stand before him and there was no one who could rescue from his power. Now that's powerful language in the book of Daniel. Powerful language in the book of Daniel where we are told that there is no one who could rescue like the God of Daniel. And the other says, no one could rescue. We're supposed to have an image of this ram that is great and powerful. And I wonder, perhaps this is the kingdom we've all been waiting for. Perhaps this is the kingdom that will endure, that, that is forever Forever and ever, the kingdom of the ram who did as it pleased and became great, surely this is that great kingdom, right? Let's see. See how it turns out for the kingdom of the ram. Verse 5. You following along with me? It's leaning together. As I was considering, behold, a male goat came from the west across the face of the whole earth without touching the ground. And the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. He came to the ram with the two horns, which I had seen standing on the bank of the canal. And he ran at him with his powerful wrath. I saw him come close to the ram and he was enraged against him and struck the ram and broke his two horns. And the ram had no power to stand before him, but he cast him down to the ground and trampled on him. And there was no one who could rescue from the ram, the ram from his power. Then the goat became exceedingly great. But when he was strong, the great horn was broken. And instead of it, there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. So our answer is no. That ram is not the kingdom of the one who is forever, forever and ever. It is not the great rescuing kingdom. Actually, it found itself in a position where no one could rescue from its power. It found itself in need of rescue, and it was destroyed by the power of the kingdom of the male goat. Now, I think this is kind of funny. Uh, I think it's intentional that if you remember in chapter 7, do you remember what we were talking about? 
Great bears raised up with, on their side with ribs in their mouth. We had cheetahs moving swiftly across the land. We had a beast that we couldn't even ascribe the name of something to it. It's just a great beast in Daniel chapter 7. What do we have in 8? We have a ram and a goat. These are barnyard animals. I don't think that is unintentional. Daniel chapter 7 is largely about the world powers and the fear of the world and the face of the world powers, as we'll see in Daniel chapter 8. This is about the, the relationship of the world's kingdoms in relationship to the persecution of God's faithful. And you know what the world's kingdoms are in comparison to God's protection of His faithful? Barnyard animals shepherded by the Lord God. Don't miss that. They're powerful. They're great. None can rescue till the shepherd shows up. He puts the barnyard back in the places where it should be, and it puts down the barnyard animals that begin to act like wild beasts. If you look at the passage with me, verse 5, Considering a male goat came from the west across the whole face of the earth. So where you had a kingdom that was coming from the east, now you have a kingdom that's coming in from the west and it was going about without touching the ground. This is a bit of a hint to its identity that it comes from the west. We'll come back to that. Clearly it's swift and unstoppable in its march. You get this picture of a powerful male goat rampaging about. It has a conspicuous horn, a conspicuous horn. That's another hint as to who it is that this kingdom is about. It's a horn refers to power and strength. Typically, a horn would refer to a mighty ruler of a kingdom. And we're told that the ram did as it pleased and was great and yet was powerless against the goat. And the goat became exceedingly great in the ram's place. Until what happens at the end of the paragraph that we just now read? Look at verse 8. Then the goat became exceedingly great. When it was strong, the great horn was what? Broken. Evidently, this ruler is not the great ruler of the great kingdom that would last forever, forever and ever, according to Daniel chapter 7. It says that it was broken and instead came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. There's some fracture that takes place in the kingdom. As one king is deposed or put down, some ruler is in some way subjugated in some fashion, and the power is then distributed and divided among four powers, and those four powers then split uh, geographically according to the four winds of the heavens. They go their own way, but they do so in a continually sweeping manner, right? Beautiful, evocative imagery of the apocalyptic. Let's continue reading as we see what happens next. Verse 9, what's going to happen now that these barnyard animals are out of control? Out of one of them came a little horn. Out of, out of one of these four horns came a little horn, and that little horn which be, grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land. It's huge. It grew great even to the host of heaven and some of the hosts and some of the stars it threw down to the ground and trampled on them. It became great, even as great as the prince of the host. And the regular burnt offerings was taken away from him. And the place of his sanctuary was overthrown. 
And a host will be given over to it together with the regular burnt offerings because of transgression. And it will throw truth to the ground. And it will act and prosper. Then I heard a holy one speaking and another holy one say to the one who spoke, For how long? For how long is the vision concerning the regular burnt offering and the transgression that makes desolate? And he said to me, For two thousand three hundred evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. This is a prophecy about a great horn, another horn that came up in the midst of the others, but itself that began as a little horn became great. And I want to walk through this verse by verse so that we see and we see the imagery and we have the imagery inside of us before we go guessing at who this is talking about. Let's just hear the power that we're supposed to to have as we read this. You notice he could have just said the name. There's going to be this dude. Is going to be his name's going to be this. It's going to be really bad. All right. It doesn't say that. It try, it draws that out in poetic imagery. Verse nine. We're told something new. East and south and toward the glorious land. This is, this is a unique war. This is a war that is turned toward God's people, Israel. Verse 10, we're told that it turns toward the host of heaven. Now this is a new war. This is, this is a great battle, and we're told that it is distinctly spiritual in nature. And it even appears that the heavenly places are thrown, overthrown by this world power that's rampaging about on the head of this male goat. Verse 11, it says that this male goat, that this horn on the head of the male goat grows up to be as great as the prince of the host. Who is the prince of the host of heaven? It appears that this world power is exalted even to the position of the Lord. This is serious stuff. We are are talking about something that we haven't seen talked about quite yet in the visions of Daniel. Look at verse 12 with me, and we have this horrible list. A host will be given over to it together with a regular burnt offering because of transgression. It will throw truth to the ground and it will act and prosper. This horn is specifically assaulting the worship of God. This horn is specifically assaulting the truth of God. And he appears victorious, trampling, moving, and acting, and prospering. I'm reminded of the quote that I shared with you last week. I'll share it again later in the service. Your resistance is futile. Your resistance is futile as the call of the Horn, you might as well come and bow the knee. I am as great as the king of heaven, and I will put down his worship. And the call of heaven itself is the call of the people of God throughout all of history. What's the call? How long? You ever called that? You ever joined the saints of all of the ages and even the angels in crying out, how long? been 2,300 days and we are weary. How long has been the cry of every age? It's a cry of desperation, isn't it? It's a cry that says, I'm asking how long because I'm done. 
This is too much to see truth trampled to the ground, to see one as rebellious and blasphemous, to exalt himself to the position of the Lord and yet act and prosper. You know, at some point, this isn't describing one ruler of one age. This is just describing the world. We look around and we see truth being trampled to the ground over and over again in every time and place. And we see those who trample truth to the ground acting and prospering. And Nehemiah said it. And Jeremiah said it. And Isaiah and all the prophets said, they said, how long? This doesn't make sense. If there is a God, surely you would put down such wickedness. It's a cry of desperation. But you know what else it is? I love the cry of how long. I love to see the cry of how long on God's people's lips because it's also a cry of faith. You don't cry how long to one that you don't think can do anything at all about it. You cry how long to one that you know sees, that you know listens and you know can intervene. It's a cry of one who believes the Lord. Though you're saying, Lord, it looks like, and it sure feels like you are on your heels, and we are nearing defeat. But I believe you are sovereignly still in control, and I have every evidence that you are good. So I'm going to say it again. Lord, how long? It's enough. How long until you agree it is enough? And the cry of heaven, turning back to them, is that it will be 2,300 evenings and mornings. Now it's interesting, evenings and mornings. You didn't have to say it that way. You could have said about seven years. Maybe 2,300 days, but it says 2,000 evenings and mornings. I think that I know it evokes so much in me. I haven't been sleeping much. I've been very concerned of late for the discipleship that is taking place at Cross Point Coast, for the discipleship that's taking place in my own heart and my, in my growth. Do I love Jesus? And, and will I cry out how long? My heart's been convicted for the nation. I'm not sleeping much. And, and I'm beginning to notice that, it, that these are not days. These are evenings and mornings. Like there's actually two parts of a day. It's just normally I sleep through one of them. All right, this is a long time. This is 2,300 evenings and mornings. These, for people who are suffering and who are crying out, how long, O oh Lord, it feels like 4,600 units of time. And it's not only that that's, that's drawn to our mind as we long for the Lord to act and that His way would prosper. But it also recalls creation, right? And there was evening and there was morning the first day. And that gets counted 2,300 times. I don't think that's an accident. That we saw earlier in the passage that this, this, um, ho- this horrid thing is happening to the people of God because of transgression. That this is a people, the people of God are acting in rebellion against truth. And, and they're simply getting the ruler that they deserve to lord it over them. And I believe that the reason why we have the image of evenings and mornings is because the the picture of transgression and sin is a picture of decreation. That that's what sin is. It's becoming what we are not. It's, It's turning and becoming that which God has not revealed to be true about us and walking in a lie. The worship of the Lord is being destroyed and the people of God are being made to be not a people. 
But that's not what they are. We belong to the Lord and we exist for His worship. But for 2,300 days, creation is turned on its head. And it feels like decreation. About seven years. Friends, that's a long time. Long enough to feel like this horn is the kingdom. And it's the kingdom that's going to last forever, forever and ever. Seven years. And yet, the Lord doesn't say seven years, does He? What's He say? 2,300 days. You know what that tells me? Oh, that's a long time, but the date's set. The Lord has His iPhone out. And He said, hey Siri, don't, don't respond. And he said, <laughs> there's a day, I've marked it on my calendar, and the date is set, and that horn is going to be done with, and the restoration of the dedication and rightful state of the temple and the worship of the people of God will come to pass. It's not just seven years, people. There is a date that is set that the Lord will act, and it will cease to be so that this one acts and prospers, but rather the Lord will act in His will and worship will prosper. Now, as we read that, there's so much imagery and so, 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 so much that we might feel or think or might connect to where you are today, but there's so much that's confusing. And listen, friends, you are not alone. Look at verse 15 with me. When I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I sought to understand it. And behold, there stood before me one having the appearance of a man, and I heard the man's voice between the banks of the Ulai, and it called Gabriel. Gabriel people showed up, all right? Make this man understand the vision. So he came near where I stood, and when he came, I was frightened and fell on my face. Dude, you're getting what you asked for, all right? He's frightened and he falls on his face and he said, understand, O son of man, that the vision is for the time of the end. We'll pause there for a minute. There is a value in seeking to understand. Note that, that Daniel actually sought the Lord to understand and the Lord provided the word that is recorded that Daniel and we might understand. I, I think that one of the things that we can do when we read the apocalyptic literature and revelation and other prophecies throughout scripture, we can too quickly say, I don't get it. But we ought to ask the Lord, you gave it. There's something we ought to know. What would you have me know? And we have something greater than Gabriel. We have the Holy Spirit of God who has inspired the Holy Word of God and is living and active, and He would reveal what His Word has to say to His people. Let's ask the Word a couple questions. Let's join Daniel in the quest. And what we find is true knowledge requires revelation from the Lord. And we've got it. I was at a conference recently and Pastor uh, John Piper uh, said that for, for the last, I don't know, a few decades or so, we've kind of poo-pooed any you know, work on trying to understand revelation. Just said, it just means that the Lord is coming back. And he said, no, I think as we become a people who value the word of God again in this generation, that we're going to lean in again and said, no, I want to know what you have to say to your church and what it means for us today that we would understand and know the sovereign God that is working throughout history. I want that to be Cross Point Coast. I want us to lean in and pay attention to what it has for us. And so let's look at verse 18 and see what the angel shares with Daniel. Verse 18. 
And when he had spoken to me, I fell into a deep sleep with my face to the ground, but he touched me and made me stand up. He said, Behold, I will make known to you what shall be at the latter end of the indignation, for it refers to the appointed time of the end. As for the ram that you saw with the two horns, these are the kings of Media and Persia. Well, that's clearer. It's helpful. And the goat is the king of Greece. Well, that's helpful. And the great horn between his eyes is the first king. As for the horn that was broken in place of which four others rose, four kingdoms shall arise from his nation and not with his power. And at the latter end of their kingdom, when the transgression hath reached their limit, a king of bold face, one who understands riddles, shall arise. His power shall be great, but not by his own power, and he shall cause fearful destruction and shall succeed in all he does and destroy mighty men and the people who are the saints. By his cunning, he shall make deceit prosper under his hand, and in his own mind he shall become great. Without warning, he shall destroy many, and he shall even rise up against the prince of princes, and he shall be broken." but by no human hand. The vision of the evenings and the mornings that has been told is true. But seal up the vision, for it refers to many days from now. And what we see is Daniel, he gets greater understanding. As he asks the Lord, he records for us the interpretation of the Lord. I I think that this is a, a unique vision that we are given greater clarity in this vision than we are given of any of the other visions in Daniel. He's naming countries. He's telling us the order of the leaders and how it's gonna go down. And here's what I think is really interesting is just how much we understood of, like, we almost didn't need it. If you just pay attention closely, the the level of detail in the vision that we have already read is pretty profound. And when we read how it's going to take place, we say, yes, that makes sense. It's the time of the end. We're told that it's the latter end of the indignation. Now, this is important that we not get confused here. This is not talking about the end of all time. This is the time of a particular end. It's the time of the end of a particular season of the rebellion of the saints of God against His worship, the persecution that comes during the course, and the suffering that comes during the course of that persecution, and then the end of that suffering when the Lord reestablishes the temple. It's a particular end. It's an end of indignation, transgression, and of the angering of the Lord that stirred up judgment. And we're told that there's a ram in verse 20. We already knew that, but we didn't know the name of the kingdom. Though if you watch history, you would see that there is the kingdom of the Medes and Persians. And it was actually the coming together of one kingdom that then the Persians come in and they sort of subdue, but still share power. And the the Persians are greater, a greater horn than the Medes, but they share this kingdom together. And that kingdom was brought low by verse 21, the goat, the king of Greece. What's the name of the first ruler of the of Greece? Alexander the Great. We're not told it in this passage, but we're told that it's the first ruler. And he was a conspicuous ruler. He was great and mighty and powerful. And the pinnacle of his kingdom as, as Greece was this mighty power that becomes the language in which the very Bible is written because it was the language of the whole earth of the day, right? All the, the that land mass and was speaking this one language under Alexander the Great. 
He did this by the time he was 33 years old. Then he died. He was a conspicuous horn, but he was not forever, nor forever and ever. It says that the horn was broken. And that horn, we know as we look back in history, Daniel knew this looking forward through the interpretation, but we can look back in history and see that when that horn was broken, that it broke into the four generals of his kingdom. 33, the kingdom is broken into four parts and they split to the four winds and those four generals rule, but not with the same power that Alexander ruled. And then we're told that there is one from among them. We know looking backward, it was the Seleucids that there was one from among them that was a king bold of face, and he caused fearful destruction. He destroyed mighty men. He destroyed the saints. Deceit prospered in him, that he was great in his own mind, and that he rose to, to call himself to be in the position of the prince of princes. I'm going to come back to him in just one second. But we're told that as he rises, right in the same sentence, that we're told that he rises against the prince of princes, comma, and he shall be broken. Let's be clear. You don't do that. He shall be broken, but by no human hand. When we rise up against the Lord, it's the Lord who would deal with this rebellious, arrogant one. And you know what's interesting is I think that's a theme of Daniel. We've actually seen it a number of times. Think back with me. Do you remember the, the great statue with the golden head that was Nebuchadnezzar? And then the kingdoms that come underneath of it, and we get some good hints as to who those kingdoms might be from these later visions. Do you remember what brought the statue down? Do you remember that it was a stone crafted not by any human hand? Do you remember that? Do you remember that it's the Ancient of Days who destroys the beast of Daniel chapter 7? Do you remember that Nebuchadnezzar himself was made to be a beast until he humbled himself before the Lord God and then the Lord restored him to his wits? Do you remember that it's the Lord who wrote on the wall of King Belshazzar announcing his death? I think it's the theme of Daniel. There's a king. You can rise up against him and you can make war and you can try and mess with his people. But the Lord is God. You will be brought down by his hand, with all the talk of great kings and kingdoms and leaders and rulers and lands and peoples, there's a Lord who reigns. It is the message of Daniel for the people of God in every time and place. But there was a man who came out of the Seleucid Empire. I said, I come back to him. His name was Antiochus Epiphanes. Antiochus Epiphanes. Now, what's interesting is Epiphanes was not his last name. There are very few people in all of history who would ever want to bear this last name. But instead, Antiochus gave it to himself. Epiphanes means God in the flesh. And you're wondering a little bit about, like, what does it mean that he exalted himself and that he was great in his own eyes? What it means is that he would give himself the name Epiphanes, God in the flesh. You know what uh, one who believes that he is God in the flesh does? When he goes to the glorious land of Israel and he meets the people of God who had been restored to their land after the 70 years of captivity, he burned the scriptures. He outlawed temple worship, circumcision, and all the worship of God. More than that, if someone was found to continue to be faithful to God, I'm sure if Daniel was alive in the day, he knew this would happen to him, they would be crucified. They would be killed, all, all who remained faithful. More than that, he set up 
I hope this, this is as weighty to you as it was to Daniel when he heard it. That he would set up an abomination. He would set up an altar to Zeus in the Holy of Holies in the temple of God. An altar to Zeus. Who's Zeus? He would sacrifice pigs on the altar of God to desecrate it. He would trample truth to the ground. There's a weightiness and a sense that Daniel, when he hears these things, he's, he's thinking this is the end of the worship of God. You see why he is so distraught. So what happened? Just a quick history lesson. A guy named Judas Maccabeus, along with his brothers and his family, rose up in rebellion against Antiochus. And as they rose up in rebellion in 164 BC, the temple was retaken and rededicated. That our brothers and sisters who are Jewish in our community, when they celebrate Hanukkah, they're celebrating the day of dedication. The day of, of rededication of the temple and the restoration of worship and sacrifice so that they could point just a little bit longer according to the, the plan of God, the coming of the true sacrifice, Jesus, the one who brings light into the world. And later, just a little bit later in that same year, when God would use Judas Maccabeus to restore worship in the temple, Antiochus himself died in a largely unknown manner. What is he? He's put down by no human hand. So what does all this mean? Again, I want to go back to commentator Ian Duguid. He says this. He makes three observations. The ram and the goat look indestructible. Don't they? I mean, the, the imagery says, no way, man. You can't beat these dudes. And then another dude comes along and they're done. They're just wild animals running on God's timetable. And third, they look so powerful, but they're just sheep and goats. Now, here's the thing for you and I, as we try to think, what does this mean? What does this mean for my life? What, why are we spending so much time on this passage? Well, because it's the Word of God, and surely it's beneficial. In what way is it beneficial, though? The deal is we don't often face monsters like rams and goats rampaging. All right? We don't often face things that would fit quite this apocalyptic literature, but sometimes it can feel like it. Sometimes it can feel like this, this uh, trial that we are in the midst of is seven years, not 2,300 days, and the Lord will bring it to an end. I think that there's a connection for us. Again, Ian Dugan says this, the one who raises up world conquerors and then consigns them to, the, to turn to the pages of ancient history books is the same one who controls your personal story. At Crosspoint Coast, we, we often say that we celebrate the great story of God that connects to our story. What a grace. It's His story that matters, but it's, it's His story that's powerful and good. Because His story matters, and because His story, His gospel is powerful and good, as it connects to our story, it changes everything. So we're not just informed about what God is doing. We are transformed by what he is doing. We're transformed by the gospel. That the news of what the Lord is doing becomes good news to the people of God. 2,300 days. It's a long time. You might be in the middle, I don't know which day you're on in a particular struggle that you are in, and you might be tempted to cry out, How long, O Lord? Or perhaps with the disciples, you look over in the midst of the storm and you find Jesus sleeping and you say, why does it seem that God is asleep when I need him most? 
And your cry is, how long? Oh, Lord, is your iPhone broken? I don't know. Are the alarms of heaven not going off? I just feel really alone right here. But listen, church, we have something that not even Daniel had, though he had the evidence that pointed to it. Here's what we have. That the cross of Jesus Christ is the answer to the question, teacher, do you not care that we are drowning? The cross of Christ is the rescue that has come. And he has announced that there is a kingdom that puts down every other kingdom. He is the wing under whom we take refuge. And he answers the question, there is a date that is set. It's the date that my people will enter into my kingdom. And that kingdom is forever. And there will not be beasts or barnyard animals. But you will be there according to my grace. As you place your faith and take refuge in the shadow of my wing. You see, the tragedy of this passage is this, that the temple of God is desecrated. But isn't that the story of Christ? You see, the Scriptures call Jesus the tabernacle, that He is the epiphany. He is the one who is God made flesh, and yet He bore sin on a cross. Did He not become a curse on a tree? Would it not be right to say that the very God-made flesh was desecrated, stripped naked, spat upon, and accursed on a tree on our behalf? The sun ceased to shine. The stars were swept from the heavens, and all was dark. And it looked like on that day that the prince of the princes was defeated. But when we, when we look at the book of Daniel, who are we? Are we Daniel crying out how long? The cross tells us something different. The cross tells us that we are the ones who are the sinners who are crying crucify him. And it's only when we see the grace of the cross that we move from being those who cry crucify him to how long, Lord, would you remain in the grave? And then we see him rise and we say he's victorious. And we begin to worship Him. And, and, and according to the revelation of God, the people of God who become the temple of God, worship is, reunite, is reignited. And we become dedicated to the Lord according to His sacrifice. And we say, how long, O Lord, will Your people long for Your return? That we want the Lord to be in the presence of His renewed temple, the church of God. I don't want to be Antiochus anymore. I don't want to fit and rage north and south and east and west, making much of myself, trying to make much of my own kingdom in this world. I want to be caught up in the shadow of the wing of the kingdom that is forever. It's exactly what we see taking place in the faith of Daniel. One more verse to read before we close. Verse 27. And I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for some days. It's incredibly honest. Then, after some days, overcome, laying sick, I rose and went about the king's business, where he was employed. But I was appalled by the vision and did not understand it. I think that's fascinating and instructive for the people of God this morning. Daniel was overcome. He didn't understand it. It didn't sit well with him. He's in, he, he knows that days are coming and he knows that there are terrifying times for the people of God and he doesn't understand the purposes of God. And yet it says he rose and went about the king's business. Here's the deal, church. 
The point is not to sit in our seats and guess at precise times and places and the names of leaders. The job of the church is to stand up and get busy with the king's business wherever the king has placed us. And as we are busy with the king's business, there will be much that distracts us, much that makes us sick of soul, much that is difficult to understand. But you and I have something far more clear than even Daniel had in all of his faith. We have the knowledge of the cross of Christ and the promise that he has set another series of dates. And at the end of those dates, he will return for those who have placed their faith in him. I want to call us to that this morning, that we would not believe the world. I told you I'd close with this quote. Though the propagandists for the present world order proclaim that our resistance is futile. Though the propagandists for the present world order proclaim that our resistance is futile. The apocalyptic writer refuses to be assimilated to the world's way of thinking. Heavenly Father, You have revealed to us your way of thinking. You didn't have to do that. But you have chosen according to your sovereign design to reveal to us what would take place. And according to your great kindness and the work of your Spirit through the authors of Scripture, you have recorded for us what has taken place in the work of the cross. And your Scriptures reveal that the resistance of the gates of hell are futile. And your people have stood up and we have gone about the business of the king and it will succeed in our hearts, in our homes, in our households, in our community and around the world. Your gospel will go forth and there will be a day. It's not a ram. It's not a goat and it's not a beast. It's the king of kings, the lamb who is slain, who is the lion whose kingdom alone is forever, forever and ever. Lord God, my prayer right now for the people of Cross Point Coast is that you would establish us in your worship and we would see the heavenlies and the things that place, take place on this earth clearly through the eyes of faith as it's revealed in your scriptures. We'd stand up and walk according to the marching orders of our great King. And Lord, if there is one who is yet holding out, trying to make a place for themselves in this world apart from faith in you, I pray that you would use even this amazing and prophetic and at times confusing text to break down the walls of unbelief, that they would place their faith in you, cry out to you for forgiveness of sin, and be brought into your kingdom by grace through faith. We pray all these things in your great name, to your glory, and Lord, we trust for the good of your people. Amen.